This is The Guardian. Hi, this is Guardian Australia Reads. I'm Jane Lee. Every week we pick some of The Guardian's best stories and then we read them aloud for you. Dogs are amazing creatures. They can sniff out explosives and illegal drugs at airports. They can recognise when someone's having a seizure so they can call for help. And dogs are even being trained to detect COVID-19 infections. I thought I'd heard it all when it comes to dogs' special skills. But our first story provides a glimpse into one more skill you might not expect. Zoos Victoria is training sniffer dogs to detect live platypus in their burrows as part of a research project to determine how the monotremes look after their young. The dogs were taught to recognise the odour of a platypus using scent-capturing polymer tubes, which absorbed the smell of platypus sleeping in their nest boxes at Hillsville Sanctuary. The tubes were then placed in the field for dogs to find. If the detection method works, it will give scientists a way to collect much-needed data on wild platypus populations without disturbing or interacting with the wild animals. One of the challenges with studying the platypus and why we still know very little about them is we as humans are not well designed to see them in their natural environment, says Hillsville Sanctuary platypus keeper Dr Jessica Thomas. They are a little brown animal and they live in a brown habitat and they spend most of their time either swimming underwater or asleep underground in a burrow. And they're nocturnal. Quite often, they either may be there or they may not be there, but you can't see them. Part of the Detection Dog project is it will be a very easy and efficient way of counting how many platypus there are within a particular area without ever disturbing them. Wildlife Detection Dog Officer Naomi Hodgins has been working with Kip, a six-year-old Kelpie cross, to detect the scent of a live platypus. The training methods are similar to those used on drug detection dogs, with two important differences. Wildlife detection dogs need to be able to work in challenging and distracting environments, like a mountain stream, and they need to be safe and non-threatening toward any wildlife they encounter. It's the latter that takes the most training, says Hodgins. Working out of Hillsville Sanctuary provides the dogs with frequent opportunities to learn to studiously avoid any wildlife they encounter. She recommends that non-professional wildlife dogs be kept on a lead when in natural environments unless their recall skills are very strong, and even then a lead is safer. Kip's wildlife avoidance skills are one of the reasons he's been nominated to lead the platypus program. He's got a lot of experience and his temperament is really well suited. He's great around water, he's really comfortable navigating quite tricky environments and he's super resilient, so he keeps trying even when things get a little bit challenging, Hodgson says. Kip has been trained to detect the scent of a live platypus, not just scent markers on their burrows. Platypus often use multiple burrows, so Kip has been tasked with finding out which one is currently occupied. Once he finds the scent, he is trained to sit a safe distance away and point until released by his handler, and then he gets a reward. Zoos Victoria also has a three-year-old Labrador named Moss 
and a five-year-old Lagotto Romagnolo named Daisy, a truffle-hunting dog, on their wildlife detection team. All are trained to recognise multiple odours, including the critically endangered bauble frog. All were selected for their calm temperaments and desire to work for their chosen reward. A treat, toy or tennis ball. The dogs really think it's a big game, says Hodgins. Dogs have been used in weed detection, to find bats and birds struck down by the blades of a wind turbine and to detect estrus and lactation in Tasmanian devil scat. But this is the first time they have been used in Australia to aid wildlife survey efforts. Kip has so far been finding scent markers placed by Hodgins in a training environment. In April, he will get to test his skills in the field. Thomas and her team will go to Corrindirk Creek to trap and place radio collars on wild platypus. Hodgins and Kip will then search along the banks and cross-reference Kip's finds with the radio collars. The idea is that we're going to make sure the dogs can detect all the platypus with the transmitters and that will give us an indication of a success rate, Thomas says. If we can say that the dogs have detected 100% of the animals with transmitters on them, that will give us a lot of confidence that the dogs know what they're doing. If successful, the dog project will provide researchers with a reliable way to measure the current platypus population of a given waterway. Used in conjunction with environmental DNA sampling, which involves taking a sample of water to detect whether there are platypus living in the area, it could provide accurate and relatively fast survey results. Environmental DNA testing doesn't tell you how many. You still have to go out and survey them, Thomas says. So this will be a really nice complement to that technique because you can take a water sample and go, yes, there are platypus there, bring in a detection dog, run around up and down the river, and the detection dog will tell you how many live platypus there are in that area, and the platypus will be none the wiser. The Victorian government listed the platypus as vulnerable on its threatened species list in January 2021, but conservation efforts are constrained by a lack of population data. Despite being one of the most recognisable Australian animals, we know very little about the monotremes. It's hard to believe that we don't even really know how long incubation is because we've never seen a platypus lay an egg, says Thomas. Something as basic as that. There are not many other species that are so data deficient in Australia. That was We've Never Seen a Platypus Lay an Egg. Sniffer Dogs to Aid Researchers by Detecting Occupied Burrows by Calla Walquist. The reader was Carmelina Diglielmo. The heavy hitters in the art world are often lionised. Their lives become the subject of songs and books. Galleries meticulously document the evolution of their work and the enormous influence they've had on the generations that follow them. So what if I told you that paintings from one of the most important movements in Australian art went missing for 40 years? This next story looks at how these paintings were created and found. John Cardi opened his email and downloaded the images. There were photos of paintings found in a shipping container somewhere in the Kimberley. They were muddy and water damaged, but recognizable. 
Cotty admits he cried on that day in 2019. He had been looking for those paintings for 20 years. The story of how the Balgo paintings were found is vague, as is the story of how they were lost. A guy, unnamed, started unpacking a container he'd had for a while to see what damage recent flooding had done. There were paintings inside. He called a couple of mates, people who knew something about art, to take a look at them. Those mates had a glimmer of recognition. Then there was a phone call to the authorities, and an email with pictures of the paintings was sent to the city, to Cardi, the Balgo expert. It was the Lost Balgo exhibition, the paintings representing what would become one of Australian art's most important movements had been stored in the early 80s, with the intention of putting them on display for the first time. But opportunities for relatively unknown artists were scarce. The art got packed away, forgotten in a corner of the Kimberley, until about 40 years later, when it emerged, muddy and mouldy, but intact. Bolgo Wirimono is a remote Aboriginal community on the edge of the Great Sandy Desert in Western Australia. Population, about 400. The art movement born in Bolgo has rippled across Australia. So if you haven't seen Bolgo art, you've probably seen its influence. Cardi is now head of humanities at the South Australian Museum. But at the turn of the century, he was trying to work out what to do his PhD on. He was studying anthropology at the University of Melbourne. But on his way to Canberra, he picked up an in-flight magazine. He says, I was just looking at these unbelievable paintings. These paintings from Balgo that just had this incredible presence. It was a moment of revelation, some kind of shift in my thinking about Australia. And I really wanted to go there and understand those artists. So he wrote to the Balgo artists and asked if he could volunteer at the art center. He ended up staying for three years in the tiny community. He has a photo from Balgo. It was taken in 1982, a couple of decades before he got there. A couple of camp dogs look on as men sit among the spinifex, painting for that first fated exhibition of Balgo art. The faded colors of the photo belie the vibrancy of the desert ground and the paintings themselves, propped up in the sunshine. These are the 1982 paintings that went missing, and the photo is how Cardi knew what he was looking at when he saw them again in 2019. In between lies the story of the Balgo artist. In his book, Balgo, Creating Country, Cardi relays how the first Catholic missionaries came to the area and asked what the place was called. Community elder George Lee Jungarai said, the old people thought they were pointing at the grass. That grass was called Palku. So they said to father, Palku. And father went and called the place Palgo. In the 1960s, the mission was moved to a more hospitable spot nearby, but kept the name. In the late 1970s, following their families who lived at Papunya, Palgo people became interested in painting. In the mid-1980s, the Wolaiti Artist Aboriginal Corporation was founded, and the movement's influence grew. Wolaiti artist Eva Nogamara says people came from all around to paint at Balgo. In the early days, we did painting, cultural way, for ourselves. We did a lot of landscapes at the start. Then after that, 
people did a lot of paintings for the church. Then we decided we got to do our own painting now, about Ngura and Dugaraba. Ngura are the places we came from, our country. We came to the mission from Kiwikura, from Canning Stock Route, from Mullen Lake Country. All the different families, all now to this country we call Borgo. And we have always enjoyed our culture. We never stopped. Always dancing and singing, teaching our kids and keeping our culture strong here in Borgo. We keep our ceremonies. We visit our country. That's why we still live here. That's why we paint. That story from our Jamu and Jaja, grandfather and grandmother. Our rock holes and waters where we used to live, we paint that. Our bush tuck and lovely bush potatoes, we paint that. Borgo is country for all of us now. But when Kadi arrived, he knew there were pages missing from the Bulgo origin story. The story was always unsatisfying, vague, Kadi says. And that photo, we knew those paintings were out there somewhere. Had they been thrown out? Picked up on the cheap? Tucked away somewhere? They weren't in public collections. I searched for them, and I never gave up hope. I felt like they were out there somewhere, he says. But it felt like those early pages of the Bulgo story had been kind of ripped out and there was this vague mythology of how the painting started. The Bulgo artist went on, creating ever more vivid and colorful works, building on the famous movement. Cardi went on to work in the museums, and then the shipping container turned up. I clicked on these thumbnails in my inbox, and the images came up. And they were the images of those paintings that were in the spin effect surrounded by the men. I knew all of them. They were all burned into my mind because I'd been hoping to find them one day. And so I just had to cross-reference that photo, he says. They'd been in this time warp, this shipping container for 40 years, in a black hole. Then they've been spat back out by the universe. The works were smeared with mud. Moldy shadows across the dots and curved lines. The stories the paintings tell. Cardi gathered them up. Wrapped them. Any socks and jocks, he says. And brought them to the South Australian Museum. Cultural conservators from Art Lab Australia went to work, doing their best to restore the artworks. There was one of the paintings Sunfly Jampajin had done in 1982. A curl of dark around the bottom. Gary Nyemi's work of bright, clear colours just clouded down one side. Alan Winderoo's work with just a hint of a vague shadow. They did a really beautiful and extraordinary thing in restoring those paintings, as close as can be to the original state, Cardi says. And while he thinks origin stories are important, he says there's a danger in fetishizing the past. So he went back to Bolgo, to the children and grandchildren of the original artist and asked if they wanted to paint in response to those first paintings. In the exhibition Bulgo Beginnings, the found paintings hung alongside the new. Pauline Sunfly hangs alongside her famous father, Sunfly Jumpajin. Jimmy Juga alongside his grandfather, Alan Winderu. Cardi's book traces the evolution of the art as the people are buffeted by colonization. The cattlemen the missionaries and the political, cultural and economic upheaval they brought. And it has all those missing pages back where they belong.
People don't know that story. They only know the new paintings. Our beginnings got lost, senior Bolgo artist Jimmy Juga says. Now everyone can see where the Bolgo story started. I was happy to see my Jamal grandfather Windaru's first painting. I know that place, but never seen painting like that. So it gave me the idea to paint. I painted a new way. Old way, but new again. That was Beginnings Got Lost, fabled Aboriginal art on show 40 years after disappearance by Tori Shepherd. The reader was Shaka Cook. To see photos of the Balco artists and some of their paintings, check out the link to Tori's original article on our website. If you had to pick, what would you say is the most beautiful mammal in Australia? The koala? The wombat? In our last story, writer Bronwyn Scott finds out the real answer and travels to the Atherton Tablelands in Queensland to go looking for this elusive creature. The Ulysses butterfly brings us to a halt. We're on the Atherton Tablelands, southwest of Cairns, to look for the rare and elusive Lomholtz tree kangaroo, but the incandescent blue sparkling with each wing beat is impossible to ignore. The butterfly dances along the rainforest edge, azure iridescence alternating with the dead leaf dullness of the underwing. Then it flies up high, as if pulled on a string. One more flash and it's gone. We get back to our search. The wet tropics region of far north Queensland is home to two species of tree kangaroo. All kangaroos and wallabies are descended from a climbing possum-like ancestor, but these far northern wonders of evolution have abandoned that ground-level hopping life and returned back to the canopy. Bennett's tree kangaroo lives in the lowland rainforests of the Daintree area between Port Douglas and Cooktown. Finding it requires a long slog through dense scrub. Lomholtz tree kangaroo lives on the Atherton Tablelands, where sightings are close to coffee and scones. We start at Curtin Fig National Park, near the town of Yungaburra. The centrepiece of this pint-sized national park is a giant strangler fig, thought to be about 500 years old. The dramatic curtains of roots are 15 metres tall and prop up a massive trunk, topped with branches draped in ferns and orchids. A flat boardwalk loops around the fig, protecting the forest from visitors and the visitors from stinging trees, which grow wherever the sunlight breaks through. The rainforest here is Marby Forest, named after the nudgeon word for tree kangaroo. Once widespread on the Atherton Tablelands, much of the Marby Forest was cleared by settlers. They took tall trees for timber and turned over the land to dairy herds. This endangered ecosystem is now restricted to patches and splinters in national parks and on private land. The tourist potential of the rainforest has long been recognised. In the 1920s, trains brought people on excursions from the sultry coast 
and taxis and coaches carried sightseers on the winding roads, from Cairns to the jungles of the Tablelands. A century later, the train line is now a walking track, and the vehicles have air conditioning and comfortable suspension, but the patches of rainforest remain the same. Curtin Fig National Park is bustling with birds. Pied monarchs with impeccable black and white plumage and powder blue rings around their eyes search tree trunks for insects. A brush turkey rakes through leaf litter. Somewhere in the forest, a wampoo fruit dove recites its name. We look up into the canopy. There are small movements, birds and butterflies, but nothing that looks like a tree kangaroo. No commotion of shaking leaves, no long tail dangling like a rainforest vine, no rounded shape that appears both out of place and completely at home. This park is a good location for these unusual marsupials, but this morning they must be elsewhere. We head back to town for breakfast. There are other spots to try. Our next destination is a 15-minute drive from Yungaburra. We take the back roads past cattle paddocks and avocado orchards to the busy dairy town of Melanda, with its vast two-storey wooden hotel and picture theatre that has been showing movies since 1929. At the edge of town, the North Johnston River cuts through the rainforest and cascades down basalt steps into a swimming pool. Melanda Falls Conservation Park is another block of rainforest saved from clearing. Like Curtain Fig, it is a reliable place for tree kangaroos. The visitor's centre keeps a record of sightings. We follow the dirt track through the rainforest, checking for telltale claw marks on tree bark, looking up for tails and furry forms. The river is now far below, tumbling over rocks. Two whipbirds duet, the male's whip crack followed by the female's tuneful whistle. A red-legged paddy melon, a miniature rainforest kangaroo, bounds away. Its hind feet stamp out a warning. When Norwegian explorer Carl Lomholtz encountered a tree kangaroo on his 1882 expedition to Queensland, he described it as the most beautiful mammal he had seen in Australia, so much better proportioned than the ungainly ground-dwelling kangaroos and wallabies. I'd argue the tiny paddy melon whose solid backside and long white-tipped tail just disappeared among the trees still manages to do all right for itself, despite its apparently dodgy dimensions. I do worry that it might be the only marsupial we see today, but that's the way it is with nature. You see what you see. There are two more possibilities on my list. Narada Tea Plantation at Glen Allen and Peterson Creek back at Yungaburra. Both are easily accessible by car with well-made walking tracks. But as we stand in the car park considering our next move, a glance across to the wall of trees. And there, just above the start of the rainforest track, is a commotion of shaking leaves. We get closer and see a long tail that is, indeed, dangling like a rainforest vine, then a fuzzy face peers down, curious at the gawkers below. The dark eyes are contemplative, and there is a calmness about this tree dweller, even though the branch it sits on dips alarmingly under its weight. It is big and solid with warm grey fur on its back, 
and black on its face, paws and hind feet. Still watching us, the tree roo reaches back and scratches its side with massive claws. With its long feet, round ears and short muzzle, it looks like a cross between a wallaby and a sun bear. It might not be the most beautiful mammal, who's to judge anyway, but it is one of the most remarkable. Feeling elated, privileged and a little bit emotional, we leave the tree roo to finish its meal in peace. Sightings are rare. No one knows how many Lumholtz tree kangaroos live on the Atherton tablelands. And even in the locations where they're reported most frequently, luck plays a major part in spotting one. Melanda Falls Conservation Park receives about 40,000 visitors a year. In the breeding season, when tree kangaroos are more active and less wary, one to two sightings a week are reported to the visitor's centre. At other times, weeks pass without a notification. Back at Younger Borough, we set out for a walk along Peterson Creek, where another sighting could be possible, with a good chance of seeing a platypus in slow-flowing waters too. But as we pass the rambling Federation-era Yungabara Hotel, which is almost as big as the pub in Melanda, we have another idea. Parking on a road lined with hanging baskets of pink and white impatience, we duck inside. There we raise a glass to the elusive Lomholtz tree kangaroo, still hanging on. That was Most Beautiful Mammal, Tailing Tree Kangaroos in Queensland's Atherton Tablelands by Bronwyn Scott. The reader was Emily Elise. You can see photos of tree kangaroos and some of the beautiful views at Curtin Fig National Park and Melanda Falls in the original article, which you can find on our website. And if you loved hearing about the tree kangaroo, go and check out our new podcast, Look At Me. It's filled with weird and wonderful tales of fascinating Australian wildlife, available now at all good podcast apps. I worked as a producer on this show and I highly recommend it. That's it for today. We'll post links to all of today's articles on the Guardian Australia Reads website. This episode was produced by Camilla Hannan, Daniel Simo, Alison Chan, Zoe Victoria and me, Jane Lee. The executive producers are Gabrielle Jackson and Miles Martignoni. Catch you next time. <laughs>